This is the Power of Public Value podcast from Cardiff Business School. My name is Peter Wells. I'm Pro Dean of Public Value in Cardiff Business School. And my guest today is Alaya Moldes. Alaya is a lecturer in marketing, and she's been exploring the ways in which we as individuals or as society as a whole use consumer products and uh, have relationships affected by our use of consumer products, I think is, is my understanding. But I'm sure Alaya will provide more details. Welcome, Alaya, and it's good to have you. Thank you, Peter. So yeah, that's a good understanding of what I do. So I've been looking at identity processes in the way people construct their identity through consumer products. But my research has also been focused on materialistic values, which is linked to consumption and overconsumption or excessive consumption as well. So yeah, materialism is um, endemic in our society, I would say. Do you think it's something which is also potentially endemic globally, or is it a cultural thing? Is it something that's special to, say, Western cultures, or is it something that you feel is, is more intrinsically part of human the human condition? I don't think I know if it's intrinsically part of the human condition. That is That would be a big question to try to do research on. I think that there is materialism both in the East and the West. I'm currently involved in a, in a project that we're going to be looking at differences between Western and Eastern understanding of materialism, but precisely because of that reason. I think the even though some of the basic course would be the same, I think the understanding and the way it is used and also judged by others is slightly different in different regions. But I think it is something that goes um, across globally. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. And uh, I think one of the really exciting things that you bring to this is that insights from psychology. And I wondered if you, if you could give us some uh, background to that. You know, what got you interested in psychology in the first place? And then maybe how did that take you into the world of marketing? Right. So, I mean, it's, it has been a long journey. Um, but I guess um, th there are many... Um, synergies between business and psychology. One of the things, the good thing about doing a training in psychology is that they put a lot of emphasis in research methods and statistics. So doing a PhD in, in, in psychology prepares you quite well to do any type of research in the social science uh -huh. um, in general. So I think, you know, the training that they have and the preparation, it tends to be quite good. Not to say that it's not good in business, but um, I think they, they are more strong in statistics. So you have a, a, a kind of more rigorous methodologies uh, to, to draw on when you're doing your research. Is that what you mean? I wouldn't say more rigorous or less rigorous because all methodologies, uh, you know, are different and it, they need to be adjusted to the, its purpose, obviously. But I was drawn to, for example, the link that they have with social science. Um, is particularly, for example, they do quite a lot of meta-analysis, which is something that is more of a medical tradition and they are more done on the... Um, life science uh, research, which is not something that is commonly done in the social science. This is very true. You don't see many uh, meta-analyses done. Um, have you done explicitly done that kind of work yourself? Yes, I've done uh, three meta-analyses. Uh, now I just submitted another one for publication, so it's quite exciting. So in this one, in this latest one, I was looking at the link between materialistic values and interpersonal relationships, because, you know, there is this myth of um, you know, people who might be materialistic like Scrooge or Mr. Burns in The Simpsons or Anna Delvey 
in the Netflix series podcast, they're probably going to have um, conflicted relationships or they had a past of loneliness. So I wanted to investigate whether that was true and what was the empirical evidence supporting that type of a stereotype. And there is some truth to be uh, around. Um, so we found a consistent effect between materialistic values and having poor interpersonal relationships, although the effect wasn't as big as we would have expected. But one of the interesting things things was that this effect was resilience across gender and um, cultures, meaning that these effects exist, can be generalized. Um, now the the challenge is where the research can go from there. So there are a number of unanswered questions that hopefully in the coming years we will have an answer to. Excellent, because so that also nicely explains the the insights that you get from psychology in that sense, because then you're you're looking to understand why those behaviours have become apparent. And just to track us back a little bit, um, you, you you mentioned there this question of kind of loneliness or perhaps lack of uh, interpersonal skills and so forth. I wondered if you had any view about what happened in the pandemic in that respect, when you know many of us. Uh, perhaps even you and I included, you know, had to be relatively isolated. And maybe consumption habits changed. Is that, did you have, have you any view on that kind of issue? That's an interesting question. So I did some research with some colleagues from here in Cardiff and the Montfort University, and we found that actually the theory would have predicted that because loneliness and watching more TV increase, people would become more materialistic. However, we found the opposite pattern. And the way I explain it in, in, in the paper is because there was, um, I mean, there was also different social narratives around in in, in the environment. And for example, one of them was health. And when health is at risk, perhaps your focus um, decreases from other areas of your life, such as, you know, money or materialistic values um, or consuming things. And also we interestingly found that there were more um, um, discourses on the media trying to promote um, consumption as a way to um, obtain well-being. So we see a lot of this marketing of the well-being, right? All of the products are going to give us well-being, are going to give us happiness, uh, happiness. And it seems to be a commonly marketing tool, right? We use happiness and, uh, happiness and well-being as a way to sell products, which I think has become quite um, relevant and apparent during the pandemic. Yeah, that's interesting, yes, because um, at least the promise of happiness, perhaps uh, not delivered. <laughs> yeah, certainly it's the promise of happiness. Whether it, it brings you happiness or not, I guess it will depend on, on who you are and, and, you know, how do you obtain um, um, hedonic gratification from things that happen in your life. Yes, for, and certainly for, for me... Um, Thinking about the your research from a public value perspective, you know what's what's really interesting about it is that it starts to question the kind of consumption habits that we have, and and starts to ask, uh, you know, wh whether those are really uh, sustainable in a, in a quite fundamental sense, and and whether they they help. And, and one of the one of the movements that I've been quite interested in is this idea that we we move away from measuring. Uh, success in life and so forth for, uh, in terms of GDP, and we start looking at issues like happiness. But I wonder how you measure those sorts of things, and and how how do you how, how do you in your work how how do you get a sense of the extent to which people are feeling more happy, less happy, differently about the way in which they consume things? 
I mean, I think there is obviously a really complex uh, construct, you know, what is happening, uh, happiness, what is well-being. Um, I mean, one of the measures per perhaps that we can use is the number of hours that we need to wait on an emergency room or the waiting list or to wait on, a, um, uh, or, on your GP. Is that, um, you know, longer or shorter, um, you know, that is going to make a difference in someone's well-being, right? Because if you have a medical problem, if you have something that is impairing you from continuing your life normally, um, you need assistance. So how quickly you get that assistance perhaps is a better reflection of the wellness of, of the society rather than how well the economy is doing. Because we all need jobs, yes, but we also need health. How do you select what you do? focus on? I'm not really sure. I guess things that interest you, things that you start doing research and you find a gap and then, mm -hmm. you know, you start looking at it, that and you find that there isn't enough research to answer questions. So I guess it's just following questions that lead you to more questions that lead you to more questions. Yes. And then you discover that research is not a way to answer questions, it's a way to open in more questions, which is something that I can, um, I often tell my students, right? Because students um, come to the lecture and they want answers. So you start the, the lecture with a question and they leave with more questions than answers. But I think that is the beauty of academia, isn't it? Um, you know, to know that there, there are still so many things that are un unknown and we need, to, um, we need to discover them. You said that you've got a project that you're just about to commence, which is going to take some of your uh, previous research looking at uh, one region of the world and take it into another region of the world. So so w where do you see the benefits coming from that? What do you think is going to flow from that? Right. So uh, actually that um, project came from conversation with the students because every time that I explain materialism in class, I would see that everyone has a different understanding of it. So some people would think that it's collecting things and, you know, being an avid collector, right? Some of the people would think that it's just um, wearing um, high-end brands like Gucci or any other type of Chanel and and so on. I know that um, students would think that it's, it's just a neglection of um, a spiritualism or things like that. Uh, or, you know, so from having conversation with different students, I, um, I kind of like got this sense that there is a big gap between the common knowledge or understanding of what it is materialism and actually the academic world. So it's a huge gap. So the project comes from trying to understand what is that gap and whether this gap is equal across regions and where are the different understandings of this world and of these kind of like actions and values and, and, and beliefs and behaviors. Wow. That's a big project. It is a big project. <laughs> How much time do you have? I mean, my goodness. But uh, no, it's going to be fascinating to see uh, what comes out of it. Um, but if you sort of turn that idea on its head a bit, is it fair to say that also within our own culture, within our own economy, we, you can observe those different attitudes and approaches to materialism? Does that happen in your view? Of course, I mean, it's, um, in, uh, there are always individual differences in the way people embrace values, right? So at the end of the day, materialistic and values are a value. So you either believe that money and wealth is going to give you happiness or uh, whether I you don't and you believe it's in, you know, more, as, uh, you have more strong beliefs or not about those issues. And also something that it is makes salient with the environment as well. Yeah. And we fluctuate on the way we think um 
you know, material possessions are important in our lives. So when we are younger and also in our early years, we tend to focus more on, on you know, not quite in wealth and materialistic uh, views. Then there is a big dip um, in, in, uh, as we go through life. And then apparently it comes back afterwards in later in life, or that's what the research suggests. Oh, wow. That, that is interesting. I... I mean, I, I have uh, my, my own son, for example, is very, very aware of the league table of different trainers, you know, mm. um, which ones fit where in that system, because, of course, they relate it to all of their friends. And I'm kind of hoping he'll grow out of this after a while. Um, but now I'm slightly worried because uh, speaking to someone who's coming up the other side of that curve, that suggests that I might become myself much more materialistic um, later on in life. I mean, everyone will have a different trajectory, I would say, and I don't um, know what are the reasons for embracing that later on in life. And I think that also dif um, there are differences in the levels um, on how people embrace it. But at the end of the day, we use consumer products to build up our own identity because they have symbolism, right? So, you know, people who buy a certain type of trainers, a certain type of um, sports equipment, they do it because they are associated with a certain profile symbolism, right? So, you know, the marketing uh, gurus know, are really aware of that symbolism and they built up that symbolism themselves through advertisement. So that is basically what marketing do. They try to build up uh, profiles or associations or personas and then uh, getting uh, individuals to try to associate themselves with those values, with those views, with those attitudes and with that type of characters. And that's why we ended up buying some brands and not others. Yes. And also maybe perhaps buying more things than we would otherwise do, um, which is my next kind of question to you, really. It's slightly unfair in the sense that it's not necessarily quite in, in your area, but Thinking about this kind of the sustainability issues, something that's quite prevalent now, of course, is, is that companies are marketing their products and services to us with this kind of message attached that they're doing better for the environment, they're doing better for sustainability, et cetera, and that you, by consuming those products, will also be doing better. And and do you think that that we can have that materialistic but also sustainability kind of perspective in one or are they or are they contradictory so I think that at the end of the day, um, you know, companies are always going to try to push their their products, whether there is with a recycling or greenwashing or sustainability marketing message at us or not. Their uh, objective is for us to keep consuming because that's how they make profits. The problem with us keeping consuming things that we perhaps don't need in our everyday life is that obviously we are putting resources on some things that and taking away resources from others. So by, let's say, buying an overly expensive phone, you're spending the money on that instead of perhaps going to have drinks with your friends or spending time with your family, going to a cinema or doing other type of activities that could um, help you to build up your bonds within the society, right? So at the end of the day, it's the individual that needs to make the trade-off. Um, so I guess the key or the message that I want to um, um, tell with my research is that 
we need to be a little bit more mindful on how we put our resources because perhaps even now with the um, um, uh, cost of living crisis, right, we have less resources available than we had before. So the way to use it is the key to try to navigate that um, consumption, of course, uh, People need to meet their basic needs and also, you know, live a life within the society, right? So you don't want to be too far away and, you know, just um, not be in sync with um, everyone else, but because that is going to make you feel bad as well. But you also need to be mindful that, you know, perhaps consuming more more resources because every time that you buy a product it has had to have some cost energy cost and some you know carbon footprint right and also it has a cost for yourself um you know because you you need to work in order to get money in order to get that product right so uh, you know how much time does it cost you to have the latest phone on working hours would be a question that yes. i'm not sure many people um think about it yeah, that's, a, that's a really interesting perspective, though, because it does make you start to recalibrate a bit about, about what you're doing. And I'm, I'm also curious about, uh, my understanding of this is obviously nothing near yours. Uh, this is your area of, of work. But I would always thought that if one person buys a Ferrari and drives it down the road, you know, that one person may be happy, but he's just made 50 other people unhappy either because they're envious or because they're, they're um, feeling that that's a waste of resources or whatever it might be, you know. And I was struck one time, many years ago, when, when uh, my daughter came home from school uh, complaining that her friend had had got this uh, iPhone and and she hadn't got one. And, and I sort of tried to sit her down and explain, you know, this is not what you need in life. But do you think it's true that we calibrate our consumption against are those kind of social expectations and some sort of hierarchy of life? Absolutely. I guess social discourse make a lot of what we desire and we want because at the end of the day, we want to be in sync. There's quite a lot of research on keeping up with the Jonas's, right? So it's not that I have a lower salary that bothers me, it bothers me if my neighbor has a higher salary than I do or have a bigger car than I do. So it's just about keeping up with the society. And I guess coming back to that human nature, there are some parts of us that we want to open perform or do better than others in that sense. So we might use materialistic items in order to be at equal levels or the same levels. Um, so I guess one of the um, cures for this would be, well, you need to be confident on yourself and not use external um, you know, products or external things in order to construct your own personality because having an iPhone is not going to make you cooler. You know, being a nice friend might make you cooler. Um, you know, doing th things for your friends might um, make you friendlier, might make you win more friends, but... Um, you know, giving them, you know, uh, small items or gifts might not improve the image that they have of you. Yes, indeed. Um, yes, parenting. What a challenge. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. And and I think, um, you know, I've been struck by, you know, j just talking to you here, how, how it m might be quite 
This is kind of a personal question in a way, but it must be quite difficult for you to go shopping. <laughs> it is, actually. So when I was doing my PhD, I stopped um, buying anything because you get into this mentality of like, oh, I shouldn't be buying things. Uh, yeah. But I guess at the end of the day, it's all about what it covers your needs and why are you going to need that item for and what use are you going to give it? It is um, annoying, for example, finding products, buying products that cannot be repaired. And I always feel really crash um, if you ended up buying a product that cannot be repaired or easily recyclable in a way. So I guess it's all about how are you going to use the product, when are you going to use it and for you know what purpose. So it's just coming back to that reflection. Yeah, um, it's awareness, I guess it's all about awareness. awareness. Yeah, yeah. Because that's always been one of the, the the downfalls of working in sustainability. You know, you, you're constantly aware of that kind of dissonance between the, you, what you might have as an ideal and what sometimes you have to do or sometimes you want to do, which may not fit that ideal. And, you know, and travel is one of those things, you know. Um, I guess for for us within the, the business school, you know, we're beginning to think about those things now and, and asking ourselves collectively those sort of questions in the way that, that you have been asking yourself personally for quite some time, I guess. Do you think that there is a a balance to be had there for, uh, for, for consumers out there? You know, it, 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 there's somehow a social need to feel accepted and part of that, part of that world. I'll give you an example. Um, I, I knew this guy a few years back. He, his basic viewpoint on, on this issue was he should have a car that cost as much as his annual salary. And that was his benchmark consumption standard, should we call it? Because he it was he's part of the sort of Indian Asian community here in the UK. He felt it was quite necessary for him to portray a level of affluent and comfortable kind of position against the kind of his peer community. And, and it's quite difficult to argue against that. And, and I wondered, you know, if you'd have a view about how that really works and, and whether, whether there's, where, where that balance is between the social kind of pressure and the individual's own position. I mean, again, that's a really um, complicated and complex question. Of course, there are so many social pressures, social media being one of them. Um, so we want to be in sync with what everyone does. And we also want to portray it ourselves that we're doing, you know, good or better than others in a way. So, you know, the use of um, of items or external items to ourselves um, is... Um, is, is, is a practice that tend to be quite well endorsed. The problem is those things have been repeatedly shown to not provide you happiness. Um, so having, for example, good friends and family um, tend to... Um, tend to be better at satisfying the um, the basic psychological needs of competence, autonomy and relatedness. So we all want to feel that we are competent at what we do. We all want to feel that we belong to a community and we all want to feel that, uh, you know, we have some autonomy in the way we decide the things that we do. So when those three things are threatened, um, our well-being tend to be lower and we cannot compensate that with material items. So, but um, a lot of the times, you know, at the end of the day, consumption is just a coping mechanism, right? So we use it as a way to um, 
to um, perhaps, you know, overcompensate areas of our lives that might not be going so well. So it's just reflecting about why am I doing this? Is it just because I want to feel myself happy? Uh, would doing another activity make me happier than just buying something that I'm just going to use one time or maybe two and then keep it in the wardrobe? That would be the question. That would be the question. And then, of course, there are famously those people that buy things and hoard them in the, in rooms and the rooms just fill up with with things and people make television programs about them. But that's just, in a way, the most extreme end of precisely what you are talking about, you know, which is this, this difficulty of knowing how to balance you know, the, your kind of consumption patterns in life. You've, you've done... From my understanding, your research has done a lot to throw some light on on kind of why that happens. I wondered if you'd given much thought to changing some of those things. How, how can we begin to shift some of those unhappy consumption experiences? Right. So it is really complicated because, again, at the end of the day, everything is tied up to social discourses. Although there is some hope, there are more and more now social discourses around minimalism, for example, and um, conscious consumption, and also the societal rewards, right? So, for example, um, being materialistic and spending all of your money and then asking for loans and working long hours is something that is only detrimental to the individual. So at a societal level, we don't have any mechanism from preventing someone to become largely in debt because actually they are making money for others, right? So we don't have any mechanisms. Yet when someone, for example, overeats and they become... Um, you know, they use eating as a, um, as a coping mechanism with their life and they um, get into uh, an unhealthy state that has a cost for the NHS. So therefore, the government would put measures into reducing those type of behaviours. But no one is stopping us from keeping consuming and keeping using and spending money that we don't have and then getting into huge debt that is only us. So the consequences of being materialistic only has them for the individual but actually the society benefits from it because you know they make profit out yes, of it that's a very interesting argument i hadn't thought about this at all but you are correct we all benefit because of the economic impact uh, of other people over consuming and i have to go away and think about this now because <laughs> i hadn't considered that as a as a possibility because uh, we also carry some of the social cost um not just in health terms but obviously there, there's a, an environmental cost from people over consuming and so on and so forth but i'm i'm wondering now uh, whether you whether your work takes you from the kind of individual psychology into a more collective look at what might be called culture I'm thinking, for example, about there are a number of cultures in in um, in Asia where they are overtly unmaterialistic um, to the point of you know living with virtually nothing, and that's clearly a deliberate decision, um, and it's clearly informed by the cultural setting within which that happens. You, if you tried to do that here, I think it'd be a bit of a challenge. <laughs> So I'm wondering, um, d d where does culture fit in, into your into your framing of the world? 
Well, I think that is an interesting question. I tend to pose the question to my students. What are the positive and negative uh, consequences of living outside the consumer culture? And I think most students struggle to come up with examples, but the one that you just came up with uh, would be one of them. But I think this type of um, overly consumption or non-consumption um, has happened across you know, generations and across the history. So if we look at Greece, there were some uh, philosophers, right? Diogenes uh, being yes. one of them who lived in a barrel, right? So he was neglecting all of the material items and perhaps he was you know, an extreme case and again lived outside society and people were probably, you know, judge judge him quite harshly. So it is difficult to live outside the culture. So I think there is a need for a cultural shift. The, there are many, as I said, new discourses and new voices who are bringing awareness of mindful consumption, minimalism. There's a couple of Netflix um, documentaries now on minimalism that are looking as exactly at what I'm um doing research on, which is thus uh, working long hours in order to buy this um, car that is going to impress my neighbors is actually making me happy because perhaps it's distracting me from spending time with my family and my relatives and my friends. And therefore I become um, over time slightly more miserable because my goal in life is just to acquire wealth and possessions in order to show off, but then I don't have time to enjoy them. Yes, <laughs> that's the irony. Um, yeah, just one kind of last area to think about, Alaya. Um, you, you started off when we were talking about your research. I thought it was really interesting. You, you, you said you, you kind of got the, the inspiration or the impetus for your next phase of research from talking with your students. And I was going to ask you, you know, how does your research kind of inform your teaching? But it seems to be that your teaching is also informing your research. Is that the case? I think that is always a circle, right? Because you, I mean, students are the younger generations, right? They are the next, um, you know, the, the the next leaders of our society and listening to them, you will also understand a lot of trends. So one of the good things of um, working in academia is that you keep yourself current from talking to students. You know what's going on around the world and you know what's going on, you know, in the society at a time. So certainly teaching informed my research, but I also try to incorporate my research into, into my teaching. And it's quite interesting and it's really rewarding when you um, are talking to what you really know to your students and then they come back to you and ask you to read more and read papers about because it makes you feel that, you know, you it sparked some interest in, in a young mind and that is really rewarding. And what, that is one of the perks of working in academia, I guess. It's core value, I think, of working in academia. Well, fantastic. Thank you, Alaya. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been the Power of Public Value podcast from Cardiff Business School. Uh, we've been talking today with Alaya Moldes, who's been giving us some fantastic insights into the world of psychology and marketing. Thank you very much.